everyone, and thank you for joining us on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Sadie Rodriguez. I am a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and today we have a really wonderful episode talking about hemodynamics of a neonate in septic shock, and I'm just going to let our guest introduce themselves. Good morning. Uh, my name is Denise Sutner. I am a neonatologist at um, Rady Children's Hospital, clinical professor of pediatrics at the University of California at San Diego. Thank you. You're welcome. And my name is Amira Shrafi. I'm also a neonatologist about an hour north of where Denise is in the Children's Hospital of Orange County. Wonderful. Okay, so our guests today are on a very interesting session about hemodynamics, um, specifically in the neonatal population surrounding sepsis. And I think some discussion around the various um, modalities to treat sepsis, and our audience is quite broad in spectrum, all the way from people who are always at the bedside to some, you know, scientists, education, and then also in training level. So some people um, will come to this podcast for pure educational material, other people to, you know, find it enriching who are further along in their career and want to hear experts outside of their field. So quite a wide audience. And I was hoping you could just give us just sort of a brief overview um, for those who couldn't come to World Congress and listen to your session. If we have a septic shock algorithm, we have something to follow. Why is it that we find ourselves in situations to deviate? And when should we do that? What should we consider? This session was a collaborative session between the NeoHeart and PCICS, and of course, World Congress. So whenever we talk about septic shock, of course, to your point, you know, there's diverse audiences and people look at septic shock from multiple vantage points. Uh, We're not really focused on anything other than the hemodynamic component of it. So the microbiology and whatnot, we don't really dive into in this session. It really is based on hemodynamics. And you're exactly right. There have been multiple surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, which never really focused on neonates. It was more of an adult thing that then trickled down. There is the most recent uh, Pete's Critical Care uh, Society that also put out uh, some guidelines that did touch a little bit on neonatology, but not specifically. And so just by virtue of what we do, there's always a lot of unknowns. How much volume should you actually give? I think we've established the albumin versus normal saline debate. I don't think that's a debate anymore. But What do you do when there is low oncotic pressure? How should we deal with that scenario? Um, Myocardial implications, endothelial dysfunction and the implications of that. What is the right inotrope? Um, I know that in the CVICU, you guys have the luxury of timing your septic shock. Wednesday, third case, uh, come on over, which is a two to <laughs> We don't really have the luxury of timing our septic shock, but what is the role of steroids? Why do we all do it differently? And in fact, Denise is giving a talk. I wanted to make sure that when we picked a speaker, we needed somebody to just look at the 30,000 foot view and say, why can't you get two physicians just to agree on what is the best drug to vasoconstrict your SVR in the setting of a low SVR state? Some are epi, some are norepi, some are vaso. How do we get to that? And really, it's just a deficiency of science. But there still is something more to it than just deficiency of science. There's something about uniformity that we're missing. Amir had asked me to try to, you know, speak to, as a neonatologist, you know, what do we look to? What medications do we look to to improve cardiac output and increase vascular tone? Well, you know, and and why do we do it so differently? And I mean, that's so much of what we do in medicine is differently, Mm -hmm. right? We don't have the 
luxury of these enormous randomized controlled trials like we do for, say, hypothermia and hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy that sort of guide us to say, you know, in this context, that the baby should get this treatment. Nitric oxide for neonatal pulmonary hypertension. When it comes to, you know, the science of inotropes, vasoactive medications, I mean, there's just a paucity of data. First of all, a most important thing that the audience should know is that sepsis in neonatology doesn't happen very often. And septic shock does not happen very often. So we just assume that there's this plethora of data that people should be doing these big trials to show us which medication actually, um, you know, impacts outcome. But if you look at, you know, the, the, the studies that have been done, typically people are looking at blood pressure. And mm. obviously this audience knows the struggles with that. But for many years, that's really all people had, heart rate, blood pressure, and capillary refill. When I started off as an attending, I don't know if people will believe this or not. Anywhere as much younger than I am, you, you didn't get a lactate because it came back the next week. So it didn't come back right away. <laughs> and there was actually controversy about whether trending a lactate was, you know, important or not. Well, if you don't get it till the next week, guess what? It's really not all that important. So back to the topic at hand. Interesting that Amir, as a neonatologist, brought up epi, nor epi, and vasopressin. The most widely used medication in neonatology is dopamine, hands down. And it has been well, um, as, as these medications, that's the medication that has been evaluated the most in neonatology. And as I prepared for this talk, I'm going to stand firm and try to defend dopamine because I almost feel like, not Sadie, of course, but her peers in critical care medicine and cardiac intensive care, I almost think that they have this like back room where they go, did you see the neonatologists are using dopamine? <laughs> and, and when you look at the hemodynamic profile of it and you look at the data in, in our patient population, there has been nothing shown to be superior. Um, uh, and, and yet, if you look at how it interacts with the you know cardiac function and vasculature, in some context, it probably is a better medication. So many tricky things about neonates, right, that we need to consider, and I don't think we really do when we're at the bedside. So perhaps if I have a term baby who, heaven forbid, has an early onset infection, which we recently did in our NICU, which is not all that common anymore, flat-out E. coli sepsis, horrible pulmonary hypertension, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy on ECMO, that's a very tricky scenario. And then we might have a premature baby who presents in it with a similar bacteria, but the biology around that is probably going to be very different, and I will likely reach for the same medications. I don't think about the developmental biology of the vasculature, right? We do know that there's really important considerations when it comes to what receptors are the most upregulated or downregulated gestational age-wise. And in the moment, we really don't think about that and say, oh, this patient has pulmonary hypertension. Maybe I should use norepinephrine. Norepinephrine in the NICU is like, ooh, that's a scary medication. But yet there are some properties about it in certain contexts that we probably should be a little bit more individualized. When we use hypothermia, right, it increases pulmonary vascular resistance. Our patients have open fetal channels. So... In the context of pulmonary hypertension, obviously that can impact 
cardiac output, mm-hmm. right? But our patients are very prone to that. But it also causes right-to-left shunting across the foramen valley, ductus arteriosus, hypoxia. It's it's complex. So, you know, I just like to say neonatologists, we take care of the sickest type of patients in the hospital. <laughs> Got to be really smart to be a neonatologist. Right. <laughs> to that, I actually struggle with the patient you just talked about. Competing physiologies, low SVR state because of septic shock, vasodilation, but high PVR because of a reactive vascular bed. So when you've got these high PVR, low SVR states, what do you do in that scenario? Is dopamine going to shoot you in the foot? Is that where vaso comes in? We always talk about it, but is it right? That's the patient population that I struggle with. Yeah, that's, do you have any um, good, any any, yeah. any insight on that one? Or we put or, that patient on ECMO. ECMO the <laughs> well, I don't know if it's the answer, but I do think it would be lovely to think more about that because you know if you talk to experts in this field, like when I think of norepinephrine, I think ooh, increased SVR, increased PVR. But really, th- there is evidence that the ratio uh, is weighted towards higher SVR over PVR. So that could be a medication to use in that context. That's not usually my go-to, but I I think that there is something more here that we should try to to narrow the understanding of septic shock. Because when you look at papers, it talks about hypotension. And there's a little bit in septic shock. But again, if you look at how often neonatologists are exposed to septic shock, it is very rare. If you look at like the Vaughn data and you look at the NRN data and you divide it by how many centers have participated and how many babies actually have sepsis, um, not just, not even septic shock, right? I mean, if you're at a big academic center, there might be 10 kids in your unit total that end up with the diagnosis of sepsis. How many of those end up with septic shock? The cohort ends up being very, very narrow. And I think that that also is important to think about how do we learn this? How do we teach it? We know that experience is important, right? Mm -hmm. When I look around the hospital, to whose brain am I going to pick about? I'm looking for the person who has seen this the most and the person who has the most experience. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we talk about these things if we're all knowing, right? Like, oh, epinephrine, that's a much better medication. I'm like, really? How? When's the last time you took care of a 26-weeker in septic shock? Do you really? Based on what, right? So I think we need to give ourselves a little bit of, you know, grace there, but also understand that it's going to be a very difficult patient population to study because we don't see it very often. Um, and then, you know, the different fetal channels, the different developmental stages to try to expect that we're going to get any better than we are today as far as how we do it differently. I don't know. When I come back here in 10 years, Amira <laughs> might say, we didn't get anywhere. <laughs> but again, I think it's just because it's, it's so difficult. Monitoring is another important. Do we want to talk a little bit about the challenge of monitoring? Because again, if you look at the papers, you know, I think some of the frustration is that, you know, the end point is, did the blood pressure get better? Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, even the authors recognize that that probably isn't, you know, the end point that we're we're really looking for. Mm -hmm. And then what is the state of the art monitoring in neonatology in 2023, which also becomes a little tricky, right? We love NEARS monitoring. However, in the context of hypothermia, you walk Mm -hmm. in and the NEARS are like 90 and 90 and the lactate's 10. And you're like, Hmm. Well, guess what? Oxygen dissociation curve, right, shifts to the left. So it is more difficult for hemoglobin to unload oxygen when the patient's cold. People don't really talk about that so much. They say, oh, the metabolic demand is less. I'm like, but then the lactate would be lower. So that is not correct. I'm so impressed with the programs. Amir also has a program where they do advanced hemodynamic, you know, functional echo 
you know, I, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I do worry that it is tough for a lot of programs to develop those programs. Mm -hmm. I truly believe in the term of echo schmecko. That's a real thing, right? Like if you go to a medical dictionary, there is some subjectivity. That'll be that'll be the title <laughs> of next year's uh, debate. <laughs> there is some subjectivity even among experts, right? Even in my own institution. And so I'm impressed. I don't know if that is something that can be translated to other institutions where we can actually in the moment say, hey, you know, the, the LV is snappy. Stop worrying about that, mm -hmm. right? Give some more volume. So love that idea. I don't know, Amir, if you have any information about this, this cardiometry. Yes, cardiometry. Cardiometry impedance, something or other. Yeah, it's yes. so no. cool. It where, um, I don't know what that is. Yeah, it's, it's, um, the idea is, again, the audience is probably some experts out there like, can you at least say it correctly? <laughs> Quite correct. You know, it, it's almost like a nearest monitor that gives you these um, 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 electrodes are placed on the patient. Okay. And it can, for whatever reason, when you read the science, you're like, wow, now that's impressive. So somebody in industry out there needs to get on it. Because to have a continuous estimation of the cardiac right, output, right. SVR, you know, stroke volume would be amazing. Really great yeah. because that's what we're look really, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, looking for. So anyway, obviously lactate. Heart rate. I can jump in there. The reason we started the, the uh, targeted neonatal echo program is because we don't have any good monitors, and I will agree it's not perfect. It's not the end all, be all. The way we use functional echo at the bedside is not too dissimilar to the way we use blood gases and ventilator management. If you have a baby with a high CO2, you adjust the ventilator, you get a blood gas an hour later, and you say, okay, I made the, I, I got the CO2 to the target range I wanted. In a baby who's hypotensive, is it an SVR problem or is it a cardiac output problem? If it's a low cardiac output state, I performed intervention, fill in the blank. Dopamine, volume, whatever it is. We go back to our fourth year fellow an hour later, can you go back and get an echo? and make sure that we actually improved the physiology that we're seeking out to improve. So I don't think it's a game changer. It just sort of makes us a little more fine-tuned in our approach. Now, I will say that you did, you did comment on developing a program. It looks much easier than it is. Uh, I vividly remember there was somebody that I was training on the side, and I wasn't as vigorous in the training as I should have been. I sort of took a... Um, I just wasn't as vigorous as I should. This is early, early on when we started doing this. Patients in low cardiac output state or hypotension, I forget exactly what the etiology of it was, SVR or cardiac output. They come to get an echo and they keep foreshortening the ventricle, mm -hmm. which I didn't realize at the time that baby's empty. They give volume, they give volume, they give volume, they give volume. Next thing you know, the kid's a complete puffball. You come in the morning, you put the kid on ECMO. And I was like, show me your images. And it was just a completely foreshortened uh, LV you know, which was clearly a mess up. And from that moment on, I then realized that, no, we can't mess around with this. You have to have vigor when you data. teach people how to do this. So to your point, uh, echo schmecko, that, that can be true if it's not done right. Absolutely. You can mess this up. Yeah. I, mean, I guess that's true of any sort of technology or monitoring. They all have limitations. They all have user variability, interpreter variability, and yeah, possibility to mess up getting a coax from an arterial line. For example, a new bedside staff might get incorrect data and, you know, any kinds of ways with any kind of technology. That's a good point. I appreciate being able to pick your brain and your expertise because we so little use dopamine in the cardiac ICUs. And, and yet we share not the prematurity, but still maybe some of the neonates that are late preterm or term. And just wondering, um, with such a big sort of cultural difference, what what should we as 
cardiologists be considering or reconsidering about dopamine in those babies? Before you go on, yeah. I have drinking the Kool-Aid. We never do dopamine. Yeah. We don't do dopamine. Um, Tell us why. For several reasons. Dopamine is, a, as I don't need to tell anybody on this podcast, it's difficult to titrate. Am I want more beta effects? Do I want more alpha effects? What dose do I get beta? What dose do I get alpha? That's always a little bit challenging. There's this idea that in the extremely, now this is now we get very neonatal specific. There's a dis- difference in alpha and beta adrenergic receptor maturation such that in the extremely preterm, they're more alpha dominant and less beta. And as they get older and older, their betas finally catch up. So the idea that low dose dopamine is more of a beta beta adrenergic drug may be true in infants and pediatrics, but that's not true in micropremies. It's much more of an alpha agonizing agent only because of the number of alpha receptors far exceeds the number of beta receptors, we think in animal models, obviously never been done in humans. So finding not just the drug, but the receptor as well is no easy task. Mm -hmm. So titrating it, I find to be challenging. Then you get into the idea of the fact that it inhibits anterior pituitary function. I don't know if you guys have seen that animal data as well. Does it vasoconstrict your cerebral vessels more than it constricts your other vessels? Again, I don't know if that's all true or not, or just just fear-mongering, I don't know. But in general, my understanding of dopamine metabolism, it just gets converted to norepi anyway, ultimately. So if I want alpha, I just go straight to norepi or vaso. If I want beta, I'll just do my epi, milrinone, rarely dobutamine, um, almost never, but sometimes. So I've sort of just shied away from dopamine in general. I've sort of convinced my group, not all of them, but half of them to avoid dopamine as well. Am I wrong? I don't think we're wrong. I'm kind of in your camp. And then as I'm preparing for this talk, I'm like, but hold on a second. Here you have all of this data on dopamine. True. You have all of these neonatologists. When I go out into the community, Nick uses, uses, it. that's what people use. That's what everybody uses. And there is no science. I would push back a little bit and say, all of these medications are hard to titrate. 100%. And when you look at some of the studies and the starting dose of epi is 0.1, I'm like, wow. That's shocking. None of these, either retrospective or small prospective, they aren't titrated, I don't believe, in the way we would titrate medications, right? So I think the onus is on us to understand the medication, understand the gestational development of the patient, and have some thoughtful conversations around, I'm going to guess if I take a poll of my group who are all just, you know, some of the top, top notch clinicians. I'm not sure everyone thinks about the developmental biology of the, you know, vasculature between a 25-weeker and a 30-weeker. And another thing you said, when you go into the community and you talk to your neonatal colleagues, I don't think that they fully appreciate the different mechanism of hypoxia. And dopamine, to your point, mm-hmm. is just a, it sort of hits everything. <laughs> They're not going to get bedside echo. They're not going to do advanced cardiac impedance monitoring. They're not going to have nears on. So dopamine is just a nice, let me hit every receptor in the body. Let's get that blood pressure to where it needs to be, and I'll feel good about myself. I think there's a component of that, too. And I suspect that if epi and norepinephrine were really that much better than dopamine, we would know that because of all the patients we take care of, right? And so That's true. Um, I, I also think that you know, the experience that you have when you're using medications can help you use them in a more effective manner. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, in my unit, we have certain ventilators. Mm -hmm. We might have a different ventilator in another place, which is a little challenging for me because I always say that pick a couple things. And when you do those a lot, 
you're going to become very good at them. And so you likely will be able to manage that patient, you know, to the best you know, ability because you've practiced so much with that. So I do think that, you know, um, again, dopamine can be titrated uh, just like epi and norepi. And sometimes we get babies coming in and they're like, Got a baby on 0.5 epi. I'm like, good Lord. But in that institution, that makes sense to them. And to me, now I'm very worried about how the physiology has changed. So I don't have the right answer because it's not out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and each one of these medications have their important, effective physiology. And and then oftentimes you look and you go, wow, I need to dial this back because Mm. I have really changed this scenario. We had a patient recently that was uh, infected, a premature baby um, with gram-negative sepsis, and that patient was on dopamine and milrinone. And that's an interesting, Mm. talking about and I know day later, I love milrinone. Who doesn't love milrinone? <laughs> but if you look at the data around that in septic shock, you're like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't yeah. be using this medication. And then I had the genius idea because the patient wasn't doing particularly well that maybe we should move to epinephrine. And I can tell you, you know, starting off low, titrating up. Now, the patient's physiology was really complex, so I'm not quite sure. But boy, all that did is cause, you know, extreme tachycardia, even at like 0.08. And it took a lot to unravel that. I don't know if it's just the medication, but I think each one of these each one of these babies has different vis- physiology. Each one of them is battling a different pathogen. Mm-hmm. And we know that a gram negative versus gram positive can have very different impacts on, you know, cardiac output on the vasculature. And we don't take that into consideration right. either. Yeah. Unfortunately for us to get better, we need more patients that are in septic shock. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> it's, hard to, it's hard to randomize a baby <laughs> in septic shock. <laughs> yes. And it's good for babies that the trend is actually decreasing. It's great for babies. It makes it more difficult for us to become aligned yeah. in how we manage them. That's true. Yeah. That's all really good points. And if you want to have any last few words on oncotic pressure or steroids. Um, yeah, oh, thing, what a great topic that yeah, is. Yeah. One thing that I always struggle with, uh, in the CV, we use CVP monitoring all the time as a sen- to get a sense of uh, patient's fluid status. But we never check CVPs in the NICU. And there's various reasons for that. A long UVC catheter isn't great. These we talked about this earlier, they have reactive pulmonary vascular beds, so their PVR is high, their RVEDP is high, and ultimately but you get this falsely elevated right atrial pressure. So, I mean, there's a lot of reasons we don't. In adults, they do leg raise to assess for volume responsiveness, and that's been shown to be statistically significant. I guess in neonatology, our version of a straight leg raise is push on the liver and say, see if the baby on the push on the liver is the neonatal yeah. version of the adult thing that's been shown. But I the bedside, if you look for objective measures of a baby's volume status, there's always this clinical hunch. That's where you get to the science of medicine where he just feels intravascularly depleted. And you've got various markers that make you think that. Can you look at RVO and LVO in the setting of good function, but low RVO, low LVO output that that's just, that tells you the baby's uh, hypovolemic? I don't know. How do you, when do you know you've given the baby enough volume? Hmm. Volume administration. In a baby in septic shock, you know, uh, makes sense to us because we understand capillary leak. Mm-hmm. And but I think I'm hesitant when I hear that somebody's already given, you know, 20 per kilo of volume. I think that CVP can be an important marker. Obviously, the physical exam. That's what How the surviving the... sepsis campaign, by the way. I think it's two boluses, 10 per kilo each, and then you're good to go. Yeah. I mean, the, the myocardium, right, uh, stiff, non-compliant. Mm-hmm. We're already kind of right. pushing on this Frank Sterling Sorry. curve. Um 
And if we don't see a response in, is my blood gas getting any better? Has the heart rate come down at Mm -hmm. all? You know, does the perfusion look any better? I get it. Blood pressure isn't a great measure, but yet I certainly don't like whatever my definition of hypotension is as a kid who's in septic shock and and has significant metabolic acidosis. uh, Has the blood pressure responded? And, you know, I I tend to start a little, I always tell people, can you please look at the monitor while you're giving the volume? Nothing to me is more frustrating when I just see the person pushing really quick and their head is down and the monitor's up there. I'm like, does anyone happen to notice that the blood pressure is actually dropping while you're doing this? Pay attention, everyone, right? Because Or the pulse pressure, what's happening? Yeah, just like any of these medications, they need to be tight traded and people need to be paying attention. And you got to be at the bedside, right? Our workroom is way down the hall. I'm like, everyone, get up. Let's go over here because this patient's really sick. You can't just walk away, say, go up on the epi to 0.05 from your office. (laughs) I think that's such a good point, though. I mean, you have a, it's true. We have wows or computers everywhere. We have uh, remote monitoring and it's easy sometimes to just take the data sort of cerebrally and in a way almost forget to reassess the capillary refill, the pulse, the how the baby looks, the appearance, just the basics. And um, I think sometimes undervalued and so to, so much data coming at you all the time. It's a good reminder, just some, something so simple. Totally. Yeah. Last thing before we go, even though there's no data to support what I'm about to say, and in fact, there's all the data to go against what I'm about to say, <laughs> I love steroids and septic shock. <laughs> I've gotten to the point now where I don't want to say it's my first inotrope, but it's pretty close to my second inotrope. I go up on whatever inotrope I pick, and I am so quick to pull out those steroids. It's just personal experience 10 years in now. Not a lot of septic shock to your point, but enough hemodynamic derangements. Hydrocortisone, 50 to 100 per meter squared bolus. I love it. Yeah, I would agree that in my unit, people do reach for steroids very quickly. It'll be really interesting to hear the discussion around the Surviving Sexes campaign and how the steroids may or may not apply to neonates. We know about the high incidence of adrenal insufficiency. and mm-hmm. um, But, you know, we do things in the moment that help us. So right. I really like steroids for all sorts of things. But I don't, and I don't know how that's impacting any mm-hmm. real important long-term outcome. Totally. But mm-hmm. I agree with you, Amir, that, you know, as you're sitting there more tachycardic yourself than the patient, you're looking around <laughs> saying, uh, and every, you know, third question, do you have the patient that's on that's steroids? Right. That's a yeah. good bit. Yeah. Do you take a minute to send a quick random before you start? I don't. Uh, ran, cortisol. Uh, cortisol, cortisol. Random cortisol. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't. I, I don't. Um, just commit although, them to it. Although, you know, should I? If I'm just going to be so, you know, so pro-steroids, I probably should. I've read about maybe three, four papers on random cortisols in neonates, and I've never been convinced that it has any value. Mm-hmm. Same. Yeah, we don't either. And then, you know, some people are like, you didn't? I'm like, show me where <laughs> there no, is going to no. be a level that would have impacted my decision making and whether that was normal for that patient. I mean, talk about the what complex. What is a normal cortisol exactly. and septic shock? Yeah. Is it 10? Is it 20? Is it right. 50? Yeah. yeah. And if you're doing it sort of for, as a clinical indication to sort of stop it's and do a whole post-entropic test their, yeah. and wait for the results is sort of doesn't seem to fit the urgency of the decision. I used to, and again, this is just N of one, get a cortisol level, give the stress dose, and based on the cortisol level, determine if I was going to do maintenance. And again, totally made up. Like, there's no science behind it. And I've even stopped doing that practice. I just give the bolus, and then I'll decide six to eight hours later if I want maintenance dosing or not. But I've become very pro-steroids. 
I think that's why these type of conferences are important because, you know, Amir keeps saying there's no science behind this, there's no science behind this. We're probably not going to gather a lot more science around. There will be more um, publications, which will be important, but like to really say this is the best way to manage, I think it might be a question that doesn't have an answer because each one of these patients are just so different. That's a good point. Last thing before I go. Yeah. What I'm most excited about is the future of predictive analytics. We are an etiometry center. I know there's sick bay centers out there and I know there's other other platforms. I don't love it yet, but I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited about it. I think it's just going to be the next level. I think it's I think um similar to targeted bedside echocardiography. I don't think it's a complete game changer. It makes you better at what you do. I don't think AI and medicine is a game changer. And maybe I'm going to come back and that, that statement's going to age poorly in a few years. But I do think it's going to make us better at what we do. It doesn't replace us, but it makes us better. So I'm excited about that. Are you? I am. I'm going to be, what, whatever happened to that hero score? Yeah, Wasn't that, was, that supposed to change things too? That was, that was. We have sick bay in the CBICU. Um, and so I'm super interested to see how that plays out. We have a couple believers, and I think we have a couple that don't even pay attention to it. So I don't know I, what I, the answer is. We'll tell to you it. our etiometry monitors in our unit are mostly there for decoration at this point. They don't actually. <laughs> That's what more, I mean. They're we more invested wall, they're all more these wall things. Than actual and then people <laughs> still don't get out of their yeah. chair and go see the patient. They're any- still sitting in the workroom saying, turn the epi up. <laughs> like, based on what? That's the problem. Yeah, you just have a monitor yeah. in front of you. Yeah. In fact, um, the monitor could just titrate the medications. Oh, there you, go. there you go. There you go. Thank you so much. Thank you, I want to respect your awesome. time. Thank you so I much. All right. You. I will see you soon. Yeah. All right. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Take care. Appreciate Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so, so much for the invitation. Okay. And this is really great to, um, great to be here this morning. Thank you. Thank you. At the end of our discussion with Dr. Sutner and Dr. Ashrafi, we were joined by Dr. Goldstrom, and what follows is a conversation on his thoughts on managing the hemodynamics of a neonate in septic shock. I hope you enjoy. But first, a quick word from one of our sponsors, Phoenix Children's. The Center for Heart Care at Phoenix Children's, consistently named among the nation's best by U.S. News and World Report, is committed to team-based care, bringing wide-ranging expertise together to meet the unique needs of each patient. With teamwork at its foundation, Phoenix Children's has led the way in the Southwest region, being the first in Arizona and among the first in the nation to offer several advanced cardiovascular procedures. These include cone restriction for children with Epstein's anomaly, the implantation of the Harmony transcatheter pulmonary valve, and the use of the CardioMEMS heart failure system to monitor children at home while they await a transplant. Phoenix Children's averages 12 to 15 heart transplants a year and has implanted one of the smallest and youngest total artificial hearts in its ever-expanding mechanical device program. It is also one of the only centers in the country accredited as an Adult Congenital Heart Disease Comprehensive Care Center by the Adult Congenital Heart Association. With high volumes and a complex case mix, Phoenix Children's regularly earns a three-star rating from the Society of Thoracic Surgeons with a survival and risk-adjusted mortality rate that meets or exceeds expectations. Looking to the future of care, Phoenix Children's participates in cardiovascular research through its membership in the Nationwide Pediatric Heart Network. For more information, visit phoenixchildrens.org. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to have you introduce yourself. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm Nim Goldstrom, uh, neonatologist and cardiac intensivist uh, from Columbia University and Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital. Wonderful. Thank you for being with us today. We were just talking um, with Amir and Denise um, in general about some of the limitations of managing a neonate in septic shock. And one of them was how little data and literature um, surrounds that exact population in that exact state and how all the historical data we have so far has been with dopamine and Denise was sort of in defense of dopamine Mm -hmm. Um, and Amir and her, you know, expressing the difficulties of titrating, not just that drug, but all the other vasoactives, norepi and epi, et cetera. Um, Sort of the other more unique features of neonatal hemodynamics, like their diastolic dysfunction, um, like, you know, sometimes babies with pH or other physiologies might have a higher PVR state. And then what do you do when they're in shock and low SVR? You want to increase their tone. Are you also um, exacerbating their pulmonary vascular resistance? And then that sort of led us to what are what are we using to monitor them and how are we... So we're talking about titrating them, blood pressure is sort of one end point, but what are others? And we had brought up NIRS and um, Denise brought up an example of having a baby that's being cooled within years of 90, for example, and what do you do with that when the lactate is 10? Um, And I think the last one is just, you know, access, monitoring a CVP, the limits of, again, the diastolic dysfunction or even just having access. Um, And so those were sort of the thoughts that they were sharing, if you want to add to that. No, I mean, that's uh, honestly a great crystallization of like all the challenges in neonatology specifically, right? Working with small human beings um, where we don't have both the benefit and the luxury of invasive lines to do continuous monitoring of, of better endpoints um, and clinical markers that are, uh, you know, moderately sensitive and definitely not specific for any of these like, cl- like pathological states. Um, and, you know, they had me kind of finish the group of talks that we're going to have. And, and what I learned from this was, uh, for me, pretty interesting is that you know, ha- having gone through this literature many years ago, as like I started my practice, um, it really is a challenge, right? Like you look at the stuff that we have recommended to us in terms of vital signs and parameters that you could use, and and nothing's really great, right? Like in a child who's in a well state and going to compensated to uncompensated shock, you know, blood pressure is not going to be a perfect monitor to use, and and where to land, you know, how low close to the fifth or fiftieth percentile is is very unclear. Um, you know the title of my talk is ignoring guidelines, but I just want to make sure that nobody takes that away as that guidelines should be ignored at all. Because when we talk about septic shock, to me, that's, that's a back-end issue. There are, first of all, many guidelines that are first preventative and important to never ignore, right? The golden hour, antibiotics immediately. In any critically ill patient, right? They don't have to come from the ED. We have kids who are septic in our ICUs, neonatal or pediatric, and you want those antibiotics in stat. Hand hygiene, clapsy prevention bundles, all those things, right? Minimize care for the premature infant, right? You're not constantly opening the door and, and doing those. Those are all bundles that should kind of, first of all, like be implemented everywhere. And, you know, when he gave me this talk about like ignoring guidelines and, and we teased it out a little bit more, it was that aspect of, so your patient is moving into shock and you're trying to prevent end organ injury, you know? what does it mean to ignore guidelines? And for me, it was more of what is the whole goal of treating shock is 
identifying the physiology, right, that you think you're having to treat and targeting it with the best drugs that you have evidence and or practice with that have effect. And there is tons of historical evidence of using dopamine, even though there's not a lot of literature evidence. And it and it can work. Um, however, there are patient sets where you may not gain that benefit and you're going to quickly land from five to 20 and then start your norepi or epi or vaso. Um, and I think that speaks to the aspect of both focus on the physiology and see if your patient responds to it, right? And so to me, it's um, moving quickly and more judiciously through your drug cycle and then figuring out if you have good endpoints to be able to try to titrate to that to figure out whether they're gaining the effect from the drugs you're using or you have to change your method. A lot of the piggy literature is also showing us that um, in septic shock and shock states, they are much more quickly moving to inotropes, right? This bolus, 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 no response, no CVP change, no venous sat, then start your presser, wait, then start your... But a lot of uh, more studies saying like move to the presser quickly. And that also physiologically makes sense. Right? You don't know how quickly you're going to slide down your AVO2 difference. Um, and it's critical care, right? You should be able to, in theory, like start things as quickly or as slowly as you want. Um, and so being flexible, being patient-centric rather than guideline-centric and focusing on the physiology, I think, are the lessons that I take away and what I try to do in practice. Then the, and the question becomes, so what do you target, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and it's really hard because we don't have, you know, IJ lines with mixed venuses that we can target all the time. And, and what is going to CVP of a baby who's congenitally normal hard, who might be in septic shock, going to really tell you to titration? Um, but I think there are targets that are clearly emerging that many of us are using in our practices um, to form better... Um, uh, completions of the equations that we want. And one of them, for example, is like near-infrared spectroscopy, something to give us a venous saturation and specifically somatic value. So we, in our unit, specifically use renal nears um, rather than abdominal or, uh, or muscle, mostly because it's most studied, um, the abdomen and the kidneys, and the kidneys just ends up being a more stable signal. It's a, low, it's a high flow, low demand organ, right? So you're going to get a high value um, uh, tons of flow. And if it's going to get low flow, it's going to quickly going to show you that. And it has less variance in the abdomen where there's a lot of peristaltic moving and tons of standard deviation. That's again, just our personal practice. So um, again, the absolute value of NEARS, you're never going to find a perfect one to any mixed venous value. However, the trend markers are excellent, right? The study after study, animals and humans looking at uh, volume state changes and or uh, uh, flow state changes, right? Uh, cross clamping and then providing inotropy, both show great correlations to things like uh, flow dopplers and uh, mixed venous saturations from central values. And so venous nears from the somatic site that start to drop, right, are suggesting that your AVO2 is going up, your fractional extraction is going up. This could be a wonderful tool to help complete that equation and figure out if your child is responding to the therapy, right? You see your somatic nears drop all of a sudden and they're going down and you're going down and you're like, huh, this patient's looking grayer than they did two hours ago. And you start a bolus and nothing happens, but then you start your presser and then another bolus and then it starts going up. That is probably a better endpoint to a monitor because it's going to show you that your venous saturation is potentially going up. There's definitely need to be more work. Uh, this will be harder to do um, over the next several years, in my opinion, because again, we are good at our care in general at these places. And so catching enough patients to meet a study sample size to show you statistical significance will always be harder. But I think there's definitely enough um, case data and use experience and expert opinion to see it as a very, very low risk probe for a potentially really high utility about figuring a part of the VO2, AVO2 equation for us. Additionally, if we want to know which part of the physiology to fix, 
We have great talks, again, during this conference on targeted neonatal echo and POCUS, right? Is the heart empty? Is the heart weak? Is it not a heart issue and it's beating away and it's an SVR issue that you can get by secondary uh, uh, information? Um, those kind of things can be quickly done and really help you titrate the drug, right? Like if you see the heart like just not moving at all, maybe DOPA isn't the drug for that baby. You just want to put on epi in that mm -hmm. point in time, which would be great and fill it up a little bit more with volume. Uh, and so that with NEARS are, are, can be great parts to help fill in parts of the equation that we really had not had before in the last 10 years up until this emerging paradigm of these two technologies. Yeah, right. And lastly, you know, the question of blood pressure, and, and I've heard many of Keith Barrington's talks, and they're great, but still leave you wondering what number to point to. Uh, again, I do research in cerebral regulation, and um, you look at the transition of that data from adults down to children, it appears that using that number as a way to figure out a blood pressure that actually focuses itself on what end organ needs may be the thing that gives us more gain. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the literature in children, neonates, hypoxic ischemic cephalopathy, pre-op and post-op cardiacs, showing that the number for optimal quote-unquote blood pressure to keep you at the flat portion of the autoregulatory curve is anywhere from five to 20 points higher, depending on the critically ill nature of the site, than their gestational age norm, or then what would you use for that normogram? So mm -hmm. it lives way closer to the 50th or above the 50th percentile for their age-based norm um, than it does to the fifth percentile. And we should potentially be aiming towards that. As well as there's like inter-individual variation. There's kids who have wide plateaus of safety and ones who have really, really narrow margins and very quickly start to become um, dis-autoregulated mm -hmm. at even blood pressures that are in the 50th percentile. Mm -hmm. uh, and so personalizing our therapy to something like this, a new tool using mirrors and blood pressures to monitor these kind of devices may give us more functional utility of like, which blood pressure should I target? Here's a number that helps the brain based on this kind of information. Uh, maybe how we make further gains, especially in our developmental outcomes for these high-risk population. Yeah, no, I think that's such a great way to integrate all of the available tools, acknowledging each one has its own limitation, and then how can you use your expected physiology with your anticipated <laughs> physiology? Yeah. What, how you know your titrations? You make your assessment, you guess, and then reassess, and how can that sort of build out your curve? to this child yeah. of what you think is optimal for their end organs. I think that's really interesting and very personalized to each patient's phenotype. And yeah. I, I hope so. I think these are promising tools that you know, are giving us insight to parts of physiologies that we haven't had, at least for babies, right? It's different in PICUs with all the children with pico lines and in, in, you know, continuous running cardiac output that you may have better markers to do. It's harder babies. And I think these are the emerging tools for infants and premature babies that can, um, again, not perfect and need a little bit more validation, uh, fill in those equations that older populations have the benefit of, of, of more tools in their toolbox. Yeah, yeah. But just as you were talking about building out the curve, sort of makes sense to me as your child is unwell, your AVO2 difference is wide, you're cold, you're not peeing, mm -hmm. you make your titrations with whatever it is, whether it be cardiac output yeah. or vascular tone, and then you obviously see the child has better perfusion, they start to pee, their nears go up. But how about at the other end of the spectrum where they become dissociated? Is it just as simple again as saying more tachycardia? You're what what are you looking for to know that you've hit the limit between a kid who has a wide uh, margin and someone who has a, a yeah. more narrow one? Of of like autoregulatory yeah. safety, you're saying? Um, that has yet to be borne out in neonate specifically. Um, and so uh, we're now looking um, in our group of post-op cardiac babies, you know, how does 
cerebral auto regulation evolve in the post-operative period. Um, this is preliminary data and we haven't published on it yet, but it seems that even 72 hours post-op, right? So most of those kids are getting extubated, right? By day two, they're coming off pressors. Even 72 hours off that, their autoregulatory disturbances still live in the like 15 to 20% of the day. So there's going to be, there needs to be more studies about, is that clinically meaningful, right? Is this, it, we, we don't see it as being artifact because we're already doing a lot of artifact limitation. Um, and so I still think it's mostly prudent to focus your uh, titratable things on the data that has proven, first of all, right? Uh, the autoregulatory map correlation is something that will need to evolve and will need to get a little bit more hard science, randomized trials, things with much bigger sample sizes to kind of both show its uh, safety, first of all, right? That you're targeting higher numbers without seeing the adverse effects of hypertension-induced brain bleeds that so far has not been shown in smaller studies. And that then you actually gain something at the farther end, right? There's a neurodevelopmental impairment. There's a mortality gain. <clears throat> um, and then when to stop it based on those things is, is, is an unknown right now. Um, in adults, they have protocols that are timeline for a certain period of time. It's like 48 hours, 72, based on like stroke physiology and TBI physiology. We have different physiological sets, right? HIE, the inflammatory cascades after six hours starts to manifest itself and then it cools off over X period of time, and there's going to be phenotypic variation and differences. Does that mean a kid needs to be on like dope or epi for five or seven days? Really unclear. I would still practice the way you practice if they're able to maintain their blood pressures or they're starting becoming hypertensive on your drugs, it's time to come back down, right? If you have near stability and you've waited X hours, you know, most physiological states, you look at six, 12 hour periods of time as ch challenges to the body of seeing like they've recovered and they've responded are still reasonable surrogates to use until we get slightly better evidence about these new tools, right, that like keep it this number for this long, mm -hmm. bear out in the research, uh, which hopefully is the next, you know, decade of information to, to come forward. That you'll lead us through. Uh, and many others. Many others as well. Yeah. <laughs> wonderful. Any other closing thoughts? Uh, no, can't wait to experience this wonderful conference and for your colleagues who can't make it here, yeah. get a taste of it from, yeah. uh, from uh, online. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank we you for having me. You. Absolutely. Thank you again to our guests for speaking to us today about managing a neonate and septic shock and their hemodynamics. We enjoyed them and hope that you did too. To all of our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. And please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please visit our website, pcics.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know by Grapes, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.